Damas and Aaron. Our season one concluded on the island of Manhattan at the close of the year 1626 when Walloon Pierre Mimoui, who had first come here as an unpaid volunteer two years earlier, had now been elected by a beleaguered council of men to assume the highest post in this nascent colony, the place that Captain Adrian Block had named New Netherland a dozen years earlier. And in replacing this frightfully inept Dutchman, Willem Verholst, Governor Pierre Minouy found his newfound office immediately awash in crisis, catapulted by the tragedy that had befallen the unwitting and ill-prepared military installation at Fort Orange, the place that we call Albany today. And the sudden reality was that this colony that had haphazardly fallen into the lap of this nomadic Belgian of the Reformed Protestant faith was composed of about 200 increasingly challenged European souls who, in the fallout of this tragedy at Fort Orange, suddenly found themselves in a defensive posture against thousands of indigenous Native Americans, Mohawks to be precise, who had called this place their home for centuries, causing this refugee governor to take some fairly extreme steps, including mandating the move of all non-military personnel out of Fort Orange to the southern tip of Manhattan Island. And in further response to this crisis, Minwi then took the innovative and unprecedented step of purchasing the entirety of that island on behalf of the Dutch West India Company, something that apparently had never occurred to the Dutch before then. And in the ensuing years of this Minwi administration, this quiet, tucked-away place that was being referred to as the Manhattas by the local Algonquins and now as New Netherland by the colonizing Dutch, would start to be a much more significant destination, not just to these two societies, but to the greatest powers on earth, namely to France and even more so to England, who had laid technical claim to everything from the Carolinas to Canada back in 1606. I've said it before, this story is complicated. And it's also why I believe that it's not taught properly in our schools, not yet anyway. American history, our history, is too often wrapped up in a neat little bundle that takes us across the Atlantic in 1620 in a poorly sailed ship called the Mayflower, followed by a place called Plymouth, some colonizing efforts, an oppressive stamp act, leading to a rebellious tea party and some common sense that tells these colonists that this place must stand on its own. And that is definitely part of the story. But what I've been saying for a while now, with the help of brilliant scholars led by my friend Yap Yakups and the incredible Charlie Gehring, is that to really understand our American history, you need to go further. Back to, well, at least back to 1609, to this island that was called Manahatta by its inhabitants. But in truth, to really understand who we are as a people, as a society, and as a nation, I think you need to go back even further to someone whom I've talked about before, someone who had incredible vision and courage who in his own innovative applications literally changed the way humans live, think, and worship on this vast earth. And when that dislodged Catholic priest from Germany by the name of Martin Luther published his 95 Theses in 1517, he, as politely as he could, questioned and defied the status quo, essentially challenging the greatest power on earth, the Holy Roman Empire, church and state as one autocratic machine. And because the soft-spoken, non-confrontational, but remarkably inquisitive priest Martin Luther asked these questions, people throughout the world started contemplating them as well. And the world changed forever. And this great reformation 
that Martin Luther launched is really the impetus for this country, the one we call our United States of America today. Because if Martin Luther hadn't spoken up, well, who knows? We may still be suffering that very same oppressive empire today. But Martin Luther unleashed something in an entire civilization of oppressed hearts and minds, something that would inspire these refugee souls to vow to never relent. Because in spirit, they embodied a certain brotherhood. In fact, they gave it a name, the Brotherhood of the Unleashed Lion. A pact set forth in the wake of Martin Luther's words by a group of committed Dutch captains in the midst of the Eighty Years' War against their oppressor, Habsburg Spain, who was closely aligned with its angry big brother, the Holy Roman Empire, the very one, in fact, who Martin Luther's writings challenged. And this spirit, this mindset of fighting back, of confronting the global powers that be, are the very core of this unleashed lion. And this lion came here to the island of Manhattan in the heart of the pious church elder Walloon Pierre Minouy and in the spirit of each and all of his 200 or so intrepid colonists in the heart of the illiterate Joris Rapalier and his Parisian wife Catalina Trico in the heart of the Moses of Manhattan Jesse DeForest, who would never actually set foot on the land that he had as much influence in progressing, arguably, as anyone else. And in the heart of his family, who did, in fact, eventually find their way here, including the first physician to arrive in this colony, Dr. Jean de la Montaigne, his eventual son-in-law, and his beautiful wife, Rachel DeForest La Montaigne. Well... Nobody knows more about this unleashed lion than my guest today, whose remarkable book tells us all about how the middle decades of the 17th century became the Dutch moment in history. How in the hands of historians, the Atlantic Dutch often fall between the cracks, he writes, telling us that his book has the express intention of righting that wrong by helping people to understand the whole 17th century Atlantic world much more fully. And of course, that helps us tremendously in telling our overall epic story much more fully. So with that, Damas and Aaron, mesdames et messieurs, damas y caballeros, ladies and gentlemen, I am infinitely honored to welcome Professor Vim Kluster of Clark University to the program. Welcome, Anir. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming back. You've been here before, but um, th today we're going to talk very specifically about some critical moments in the Dutch, uh, in the Dutch history, part of this Dutch moment itself. Tell us what that Dutch moment is and when it happened. The way I see it is that um, between more or less 1621 and the 1670s, so a period of about half a century, uh, the Dutch made a tremendous amount of difference in the Atlantic world um, before 1621. You may say that the Atlantic world, world is still a, um, an Iberian world where the Spanish and the Portuguese dominate, where Spain lays claim to uh, most of the Americas, uh, where the Portuguese are in charge of Brazil, where the Portuguese are also the only Europeans active uh, on the African coast. Um, by the 1670s, that had all changed quite dramatically. Uh, the Dutch leading the way in many ways um, for the English and the French and they did it differently from the English and the French, who more or less settled peacefully on the other side of the ocean, whereas the Dutch, from the very beginning, waged war with the Iberians, with Spain and Portugal, because the two countries were united under one crown between 1580 and 1640. Um, so in that half a century, the Dutch become great colonizers, colonizing Brazil, half of Brazil at some point was in Dutch hands, um, occupying parts of Guyana, various Caribbean islands, obviously settling in North America, um, as well as adding a number of 
trading stations on the uh, West African coast of the Dutch Empire. The Dutch also set the tone in this period already for what becomes the norm later on, that is to say the Dutch become the great intermediaries in the Atlantic world, uh, shipping enslaved people, for instance, to non-Dutch destinations, but also in, in many other ways be, becoming the intermediaries between the different empires. So in all those ways, the Dutch um, have a moment in the Atlantic world at the time when Spain is in crisis, they lose Portugal, Catalonia is in danger of, of becoming independent. Um, England has its civil war in the 1640s. The French have La Fronde, which is also a big threat to French unity. The Dutch benefit from the crises in these other empires by leaving their mark on the entire Atlantic world. I say often that the timing plays a huge role in this story of of the you know the, the colonization of Manhattan, the creation of New Netherland, and the creation of this being a, an international destination ultimately, with the commercial center of the universe. Um, and and you just outlined very clearly some of the reasons for that timing. Uh, the, the the Dutch really came on strong right out of the gate. I mean, the Dutch Republic was was brand new at this point. I think that's remarkable in itself. I don't think there's another example in world history where a country becomes independent and almost immediately is a global power. In the case of the United States, it takes a long time. In the case of the Dutch, it happens almost immediately. Really is incredible. Who was the Unleashed Lion? Um, the Unleashed Lion was a, a brotherhood formed by um, the leaders of a, a Dutch fleet. In this case, a Dutch fleet that finds itself in, in South America and uh, therefore in Spanish territory. This was south of Brazil in what now is Argentina. And this is at a time when the Dutch have begun to emphasize at least the makers of plans about colonization and trade in the Atlantic world begin to emphasize that it may be a good idea to extend the war which up until this point had not been fought in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula, but in the Low Countries, in the Netherlands, to extend the war to the Americas, to divert it away and thereby relieve the population of the Netherlands, extend it to the Americas. Also, and this is something that Willem Usselings, about whom we are going to speak later on, um, will say a lot, to to have the war fought in that part of the world where, and this is something that he said and that the directors of the West India Company would emphasize, where the Spanish amassed their wealth, where they collected the silver, which becomes the source of the Spanish war machine. How was Spain able to fight its multiple wars, uh, not just the one with the Dutch, but also the Thirty Years' War, which coincided partly with the Dutch War of Independence. Uh, how were they able to fight that? Well, in good part because of the enormous wealth of silver coming from Mexico and Peru. So to the Dutch fighting the war right there had an advantage and they had this secret idea at times to perhaps even um, invade parts of the Spanish colonies and, and conquer the mining center especially the mining center in, in the interior of South America, uh, what is now Bolivia, in uh, Potosí, which was the largest Spanish silver mining center, and perhaps the largest mining center in the world at that point in time. It led to Potosí being the third largest city in the Americas. That's how significant it was. Uh, they never get to that. That was uh, overly optimistic to, to think that they could actually, um, you know, organize armies that would capture that mining center. And what they end up doing is, is um, capture ships carrying the silver from there to Europe. This was almost a mindset. It was a mindset. And it was something that, that, that the Dutch originated, but caught on to their reformed brethren, I believe, including the Walloons, um, and compelled them to, to, to venture forth and leave their comfort zone, leave Leiden, Amsterdam, cities throughout Europe, and 
and go, go forth in, in, in search of much, a much bigger vision. What do you think that vision was about? It's not a vision shared by everybody. Um, so not all directors of the West India Company agreed, not all members of the States General agreed. Um, but the vision was to, um, certainly in the mindset of Willem Ursulings, to not just wage war with Spain uh, throughout the Atlantic world, but also to extend the reformed religion and ideally spread the religion just like Spain and Portugal had spread Catholicism to the new world to, to spread the Calvinist religion throughout the Americas where then indigenous people would benefit in their minds uh, from, um, from this religion which would be new to them but the idea was they're often going to welcome us because we have the same enemy, we have the Spanish enemy, so we can form alliances uh, with them. Also, another part of this was that people like Ursulings were trying to find a new home for the very poor. Colonists from the Low Countries would be able to settle um, in the various parts of the New World where the Dutch would establish colonies. And perhaps it wasn't possible to do that in the very places where Spain was strong, like Mexico and Peru, the, the mining centers. But there were open spaces, especially Guyana, but of course, North America as well. And the plan was then for these settlers to work in these colonies for a number of years, practicing tropical agriculture and go back once they had earned enough. So instead of remaining in the places that you just mentioned, uh, where their future didn't look very bright, they would be able to go to the colonies and come back at some point. So thriving colonies would be established there as well, where everybody practiced the reformed religion. I, I said, um, I, say, uh, I say often uh, that the characters define the history and and i i believe that and and I, there's a there's a lot of great characters in here and there's one that we've we couldn't help but mention a couple times already but he comes into your book in the dutch moment as a little boy uh on the bank of the guadalcavir in seville spain watching the bulk of the world's wealth sail past him in the spanish silver fleet can you can you tell us about that and that little boy? So Willem Ursulings uh, was a native of Antwerp and Antwerp will play a role in Dutch history even though it is in what is today the country of Belgium. In 1585 um, Spain conquers that city um, uh, what, is following, what is followed by a, an exodus of Calvinists who go north and become quite important in the West India Company, but in general in trade in, in the Dutch Republic. Ursulings, Willem Ursulings, at that point in time has already left. It's, it's unclear exactly um, who his father was, probably another Willem Ursulings. Um, but he may have spent time in the city of Seville. What was Seville? Seville was the port in Spain from where the fleets left the Iberian Peninsula to go to the Americas. And Spain had decided in the 1560s to organize its trade with the New World um, differently from before. Before individual ships had left just like they would leave later on from the Dutch Republic for the Dutch colonies or, or from England for the English colonies, uh, trade to a certain, uh, sail to a certain point, come back with um, what had been bought. That happened in Spain as well, but it became dangerous because the goods were so valuable. Silver was by far the most important item on these ships coming back from the Americas. And individual ships could easily be captured by pirates and privateers. 
And therefore, a new system was organized starting in the 1560s, whereby Spain would send a fleet um, of 15, 18, 20, sometimes even 30 ships that were escorted by warships, by galleons, to two points in the Americas. One was in Veracruz, around the area of Veracruz in, in Mexico, because Mexico was such an important mining center. The other fleet went to the Isthmus of Panama. Um, if it had been possible to, um, to sail through the Isthmus of Panama, they would have sailed to the coast of Peru, but of course there was no Panama Canal yet, so they had to go to the Atlantic side of Panama, where the Peruvian silver, had arrived by the way of the by way of the Pacific and then across the isthmus carried on the backs of mules. And in those two places, fairs were held, trading fairs, where the goods that had arrived on the fleet from Spain were exchanged for silver and other goods that had been produced in the Americas in, in the time period since the last, last fleets had arrived. So dye woods would be sold, uh, tobacco. Um, Cocoa, whatever you know was available. Those fleets, therefore, showed a boy or a young man, as Uslings was, um, the enormous wealth that was gathered in the Americas. And Uslings, who probably became a merchant. Um, at a very young age, because by the time Spain um, removes the Calvinists from Antwerp in 1585, is, um, is, he's already left the city and lives in the Iberian sphere, works there for a few years, probably lives in Seville, but certainly lives in Lisbon and in the Azores, which was this archipelago under Portuguese rule. Within four years, he makes a tremendous amount of money and then settles most likely in Amsterdam by 1591. But by the time he settles, he already has an idea of what has to happen. And what has to happen in his mind is the organization of some large company in the Atlantic world, both for commercial purposes, but also um, for warfare and also colonization in the Americas. This was a boy who was essentially born into the 80 years war. That's a very good point. It's quite remarkable. When you look at his, uh, the years of his life, he lived from 1567 till 1647. That almost perfectly coincides with the 80 years war. Um, it's, it, when you look at, you know, when he was born, he was born in June, 1567. He must've been conceived around the time of the iconoclastic bout that spread in the Netherlands. In Antwerp, that happens in August of 1566, perhaps a month before he was conceived. So he indeed is the, the embodiment of the Eighty Years' War. He is literally the personification of this effort. Yes. It's, it's really incredible. I mean, he's an incredible figure. Um, when he's sitting there, okay, so he's already, he's born into oppression. He knows persecution firsthand as a little boy. He's standing there on the bank of the Guadalquivir in Seville with his father. What do you think he's thinking when he's watching all this? Some perhaps the greatest uh, uh, single um, application of wealth on the planet sail past him down that river, knowing what he knows about this oppressive regime and how it has affected his life and his family's life. What do you think he's thinking at that point? I think. He must have been impressed, first of all, as, as boys can be impressed, um, perhaps not even realizing how much impressed he was. That, that must have set in later, that realization. Uh, at the same time, he knew that he was, in a way, in enemy territory. The way he talks later on as an adult when he makes plans and he sends proposals about a West India Company to the States General, the way he talks about other Netherlanders who lived in Spain is that they're often too liberal. They hide their religion. They easily become Catholics. 
you can only say that when you yourself don't do that when you you insist and his father must have insisted we remain calvinist so yes we're going to hide it but we're not be going to become catholic so what he thought that's hard to re-establish hard to to retrieve of course but certainly there was a germ in there of a combination of the possibility of collecting massive amounts of wealth in the americas and at the same time the insistence of we will remain Calvinist. And those two elements, of course, he would then later combine in his plans for a company that was going to be thoroughly Calvinist, but that was going to do the same thing as those fleets that he saw in, in Seville. When the concept of the Brotherhood of the Unleashed Lion was conceived, I believe it was 1599, as you document in your book, Uselinks would have been about 32 years old. There, there's a good chance he knew some of these sailors that had coined that phrase and that concept. Um, he was right in the heart of this, of this mindset and this, this effort. How much of his vision came out of the resentment that he held for Habsburg Spain at this point? I think it was largely inspired by that. So here's a man who grew up in Antwerp, left the city, could not come back by the time he has spent his years as a, you might say, an apprentice in, in the trading world, but probably as a very successful trader himself by 1591. He couldn't come back to his native city because he would not have been able to profess his religion. And so he is very much a man on a mission. When you read his pamphlets starting in the 1590s it's clear that he is a man with um, a mindset very much like christopher columbus and that might sound like a very strange comparison but columbus a century before was also a self-made man um, also a man who was active on the high seas um, but very much a man who has what the French call an idée fixe, so uh, an idea that leads him and he will never give up on trying to establish his uh, his his ideas. Um, so um, Columbus has this idea that it is possible to establish a trading relationship with East Asia by sailing west. Um, it's also possible, this is part of Columbus's plan, to establish an alliance with China against the Muslim world. So there are war plans in his proposals to the Catholic kings of Spain as well. Ursulings also wants to combine war and trade. Ursulings is also a bit of a loner, an isolated man, a man who is often neglected, ignored, keeps going um in the end columbus thinks that he achieves what he set out to do um there is a west india company established but it's not really the the company that whistlings had in mind there are some uh, differences with his ideas and he's never really in his days given the credit for what he did um, columbus dies in 1506 and by then has been bypassed by other navigators and we don't even exactly know the day that he passed away. And you know, when you look up the Wikipedia page, you'll find May 20th, 1506. It may have been a day earlier, a day later. So he was ignored. There was not much of an, uh, of an outpouring of grief when he passed away. I think there's just one person at his bedside. So Ursulings um, survives, lives on for many more years, goes to Sweden, tries to interest. Um, Sweden in becoming an Atlantic power, but it's also bypassed by history. So in, in a way, you can compare him to Columbus. Uh, of course, there are major differences as well. Columbus, of course, was a, a Catholic. Uh, Ursulings was very much an anti-Catholic. So the, the, one of the main uh, uh, variances in Ursulings' vision that prevented it from being um, 
executed earlier on was that he had a specifically agrarian vision of this uh, concept, whereby it becomes a self-sustaining society through through agriculture. And the initial uh, powers that be that he brought this concept to did not want to do that. They wanted to do something more along the lines of what the Spanish were doing, which is just basically come in and and uh, take take the available resources and 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 the value out of it and and colonize but but just by control yes um Ursulings has plans for the dutch <clears throat> to settle in guyana so in the area between venezuela which was a spanish colony and brazil and this vast area near the orinoco delta where later on countries like suriname and british guyana french guyana would be established that was an area where um, the Spanish had not settled there. There was no Spanish garrison. There was no fort. And yet, in the, in the idea of, of Musselings, it lent itself very well to tropical agriculture. He's talking about tobacco, about sugar, about gathering all kinds of uh, tropical woods for the dye industries of Europe. But he thinks about it first and foremost as a transplantation of Netherlanders. It's a transplantation. It becomes a plantation for Netherlanders and ideally, temporarily, for individuals. It will be permanent as a calling, but people will come there, um, amass enough money to go back and live a better life than they otherwise would have had they stayed behind. So after pitching this concept, for 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 decades, literally, uh, that Usulinks had been gestating ever since, probably ever since he saw the Spanish fleet sail past him in Seville that time when he was a boy. Eventually, 1621, the Dutch West India Company is actually formed, and he is one of the, the initial investors. But it would be a couple years later when they actually executed their first major initiative that was um, a concerted effort to go after Iberian enemies, specifically a, a master plan, a great plan, something called the Groot Design. Did I say it right that time? Groot Design, yes. Tell us about that. Yes, let me backtrack a little. Um, so one reason why it is so hard for Uslings to get through to the Dutch authorities, the States General, is that when he is ready to uh, launch his West India Company in the early years of the 17th century, the Dutch are beginning to negotiate with Spain. So the war has been going on for four decades. Both sides are basically ready at that point in time to at least um, conclude an armistice, a, a truce, that will happen then in, in 1609. By 1608, the many stakeholders in the Dutch Republic, both um, you know the, the politicians and, and merchants who are on board with the West India Company, but you're not going to establish this warlike company when you want to uh, sign a peace treaty with uh, Spain, a temporary peace treaty, and Spain very much emphasizes this. We're not going to sign a treaty if you are going to establish a West India Company. So it has to wait. And therefore, it's only once the 12-year truce that is signed in 1609 is about to come to an end that the States General decides that a West India Company will be established, partly along the lines of Usling's plans. But as you mentioned before, it's different from Usling's initial vision in that war is so much more important than trade and settlement in the way that the company is established. And by the time in 1623, when finally enough money has been assembled, 7 million guilders, uh, by the time that the first board meetings take place, um, the directors of the company decide on the grote design, the grand design, the great design, however you want to translate it into English. In my book, I call it the grand design. 
it's an incredibly optimistic plan. Partly perhaps because the idea was that God is on our side, so he will choose us over the Spanish, over what is sometimes seen in those days as, as the Antichrist. And it means that the Dutch are going to fit out fleets east and west in the Atlantic Ocean, fleets that will conquer Portuguese trading stations. The Portuguese were the only European country with a presence on the African coast. They were active in what is now Angola. They had built the first European stone building in Africa, in Elmina, in what is now Ghana. That was a target of the Dutch of both these places, Elmina and Angola was what the Dutch had in mind to, to conquer and, and establish a foothold because they would establish colonies in the Americas. Where would they establish colonies? There are debates among the directors. Some say, well, perhaps Cuba might be a good place to land. Others say, well, Brazil, because Brazil is originally Portuguese, that might be the weak link in the whole chain of the Spanish empire. And Immediately, these fleets leave. There's one fleet that leaves for Angola. Another fleet after that goes to Brazil. But things don't exactly go the way they had expected it to go. Um, the one in Angola doesn't succeed in his mission. The one in Brazil does. The capital of Brazil, Bahia, Salvador de Bahia, is conquered by the Dutch. But it's only one year that the Dutch are in charge of that capital city. Then a, an Iberian fleet arrives and dispels the Dutch. And in other ways, the grand design also doesn't go according to plan. So the Dutch then try to conquer Elmina and are defeated with a large number of Dutch soldiers um, dying. There's a fleet that tries to help the Dutch in Brazil, but arrives too late because they've already you know, been defeated and then sails on into the Caribbean, attacks San Juan in Puerto Rico. Um, Dutch soldiers go ashore, but they also lose that battle. So by late 1625, just two years into the operational stage of the West India Company, they have nothing to show for all their efforts. This God is on our side concept made the great design more than just a capitalistic endeavor. There was a huge spiritual component to it. Um, they, they truly felt that they were the, the righteous ones on this earth and that, that, that the Spanish and Portuguese were the, were, 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 were the true enemy, the true enemy of mankind. Um, when they went to Puerto Rico, they pillaged uh, the church there, and they were careful to take out the bells from that church. And where did they transplant those bells? Those bells were transplanted to New Amsterdam and become the bells of, I believe, the very first church building in New Amsterdam. So in a way, warfare you know, had a... Um, a peaceful consequence in this sense. But that's a bold statement. I mean, to go down there and rip out the heart of their church and then replace it in our church, or the, you know, the Dutch church up here, the first one, which I believe was 1627, down on what is now South William Street. I think that's where it was. Um, that's a bold move. Yes. And that's essentially what this, this entire mindset was this unleashed lion this great design these these folks were going to be bold like you said the french and english weren't doing this they were not waging you know a decisive war against the the spanish and portuguese the the dutch were and it was and it was with god's will in their in their uh motivation and what's interesting is that a few decades later the english in a way copy the Dutch under Oliver Cromwell, when they have a plan to uh, almost as ambitiously, ambitiously as the Dutch in the 1620s, invade the Spanish Empire. 
um, starting with Santo Domingo, but they fail and then sail on to Jamaica, which had not been the original plan, and conquer the island of Jamaica. But that was also um, very much in line with the initial Dutch plans, a very much, of course, um, religiously motivated expedition as well. Now, you said you mentioned that the great design didn't go so well in its first phase, so to speak. It was launched in the, was it 1623 or 1624? 1623. And it's then at the end of that year that the first fleet is um, leaves Dutch ports. And it became a bit of a money pit the first couple of years. They were not getting the returns they had hoped for and needed to keep this thing going. And there was, again, the characters make the history. There was a sailor, uh, privateer, in, in, in the employ of, of the Dutch West India Company by the name of Pete Hein. And he had gone on one of these early missions that did fail. That didn't, they, they didn't have enough ships. They didn't have enough men. Can you tell us about that first mission that he went on and was distraught because of that uh, in- inadequacy of his fleet? Yes. Uh, so Pete Hein... Um, is part of the war effort in in Africa, and um, it's his task to conquer the trading station at Almina, Sao Jorge de Almina in uh, West Africa, was now Ghana, but that fails miserably, and because of all these failed expeditions, the mood begins to change in the Dutch Republic. And there are those who are now coming out of the woodwork who say, well, we should never have been, been this ambitious in trying to conquer all these places. We should just stick to what we're good at, which is privateering, which is seizing enemy vessels wherever we find them. Uh, we've done that already in the 1590s. Uh, we've done that prior to the 12 year truce. We should put our hopes on that, uh, that is certainly going to be much less costly than the operations which we've tried to engage in because of the enormous overhead costs. Um, so let's focus more on that. Now, you had mentioned when Uslinks was watching that Silver Fleet go by when he was a little boy, that they they were in the process of modifying and um, changing the way they sailed off to the, the the western side of the planet to this new world to get this silver where they they really beefed up their their fleets their armadas included up to 20 and sometimes 30 ships led by warships and Uslinks was a wise old man at this point and Pete Hein was no dummy. He was a he was a veteran sailor at this point. And in spite of the failures that they met with in the in the early stages of the the great design, they persevered and they studied this Spanish fleet, this massive Spanish fleet that Pete Hine did not have enough ships to overtake the first pass through. But eventually they studied it enough to know how to overtake it. That's right. Tell us what happened in the Bay of Matanzas. <clears throat> Cuba, like Florida, played an important role in this Spanish transatlantic trade system. Um, so to the Spanish, it was very important to keep Cuba in the empire and to keep Florida in the empire, because if Cuba were lost or Florida, it would have meant that uh, enemies of the Spanish would have an ideal privateering base to attack the Spanish treasure fleet. And the Spanish are very much afraid once the West India Company gets started that it's Cuba that the Dutch are after. So they already probably had an idea that the Dutch would aim at those two treasure fleets. Now, why is Cuba important in this Spanish translating trading system? It's because both fleets, one the, the southern fleet that came from Panama and the more northern fleet that came from Mexico would both stop over at Cuba 
to refresh, to repair ships, and to get ready for uh, the final leg of their journey back to uh, back to Spain. Sometimes the two fleets would even combine, join, uh, and that would always happen on the northern side of Cuba. So the Dutch had studied the movements of this fleet. In this case, in 1628, it's the treasure fleet that had left from, from New Spain, from Mexico, from Veracruz, and was on its way back. Piet Heinz fleet is not the only fleet that the Dutch had sailing around in the Caribbean. And the Spanish were afraid of the Dutch, um, but they had one fleet, uh, they had counted one fleet or at least spotted it in the distance, but that fleet had left, so they thought they were safe. What they do is go into this Bay of Matanzas on the northern side of Cuba, um, where the Dutch then enter shortly afterwards. And once the Dutch enter, the entrance to the bay is closed off. The Spanish fleet has no place to go. And this is a very easy gift in a way to Pete Hein and his men. So Pete Hein even goes on record saying, well, you know, I don't think this was such a, a major achievement of mine. I've, I've, you know, fried bigger fish. When I was on the coast of Brazil last year, I captured dozens of, of Portuguese ships sailing there. This was so easy. And he says that actually later on when he's received by huge crowds in the Dutch Republic, thousands of people show up or almost as if he won the Super Bowl. You know, that's the, the, the massive crowds that appear and he's standing there and he's saying to himself, well, what's the big deal? I don't really deserve this. Right, this is nothing. 12 million guilders, that's ah, nothing. It's a large amount of money, of course. I mean, <clears> it's important, not just because it, it may have been something like the gross domestic product of the Netherlands at the time. It's not just that they gain that, but their enemy loses it. So in a way, you know, it's twice that amount. So essentially, the, this, this hall at Matanzas is what the whole great design was designed to do. It, it means actually that the grand design gets a second chance, if you will. Uh, because silver is so important in the Spanish war machine that Spanish soldiers are paid in silver pesos. So soldiers active in the low countries in the war against the Dutch now have to you know, wait for payment. Uh, a certain percentage of what they gained also goes to the Dutch stadtholder, who was the commander in chief of the Dutch army. And he used that money for a siege in the south of the Netherlands. Um, south of what is becoming the Dutch Republic, uh, and that battle is won. So one of the decisive battles in this long 80 years war is won you know, because of the infusion of money coming out of this silver fleet. The dividend, I believe, was about 50% to shareholders that next oh, yes. year as a result of this. In, in general, for the whole history of the West Indian Company, you don't want to be a shareholder, but at that point in time, you do. Yeah, exactly. That was, again, timing. But this injection of wealth essentially facilitated financially the, the, the furtherance and the maintaining of developing this colony centered on the island of Manhattan for years and years to come, didn't it? Well, certainly in the next years, there's enough money available. And that's a crucial moment in time for New Netherland. It's also a crucial moment for the West India Company's plans to perhaps go ahead with stage two of the grand design. The first stage had failed, um, but now they realize they have enough money to, to try again and to return to Brazil. It's really a big part of the overall story, isn't it? It is. This grand design. Something that uh, I, I just don't think it's, I've never, I never heard of it in school. Does, does your school teach this? Well, I, I do. I myself do uh, at my university, but I know my kids never had it in school here. It's just something that I think is uh, really valuable to learn and uh, to study because it tells you a lot about what was going on back then, uh, the motivations and the, and the personalities affected by it. Um, well, you know, these 
many of our viewers and subscribers are students and and these kids today you know they they're hungry to really know the true story of of where we come from and what we're essentially made up of and and i think this unleashed lion uh is is really part of who we are and why we're here today and that's why i do think these additional elements are very important to to talk about and know about what are your thoughts on integrating and improving the telling and the teaching of these stories, this, these parts of the stories to students, to schools here in the States? I am what I call an Atlantic historian. And Atlantic history is a field that has been established in part to, um, we might say, deparochialize American history. So American history has often been taught in an almost self-contained way with references to English history, as you mentioned before, the, the Pilgrims, um, the Puritans, yeah, Plymouth. But when you zoom out from New England, you realize that there's a much larger story to tell where um, what is now the area of the United States has always been part of larger networks of larger endeavors, endeavors that are not necessarily English, um, but that are Spanish and Portuguese and Dutch. And I think to tell it that way is doing truth to the past, to where we really come from, and to acknowledge that history is much more complex than the stories that have been told. Um, and to integrate the Dutch is, I think, simply part of that effort. I think you're right. Well, Manir, let me say that it is uh, an absolute honor and privilege to have you on our program again. And then you and I are officially co-conspirators in the holy pursuit of making history cool. Your book has been instrumental in uh, my education in this overall epic story. And I know that our listeners will find it equally remarkable. And we extend great thanks for your time, spirit and insight. Bedankt, my friend. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay. We'll talk soon. Professor Wim Klooster, ladies and gentlemen, his book is The Dutch Moment, War, Trade and Settlement in the Atlantic World. Its link is on our website and it is available at all major booksellers. Thank you again, Professor. You're welcome. If you're enjoying us on YouTube, please be sure to hit the subscribe button to get every episode. And don't forget to tune in to our companion podcast, Island, the incredible history of the island of Manhattan from 1609 to 1909. History is cool. Island Voices is a production of Chance Kelly, Inc. and may not be reproduced or re-exhibited in any manner in whole or in part without authorization. Thank you.